0: The book of Joshua, chapter seven. Um, if anybody wasn't here last week, uh, I do have extras of the outlines. I'll put them. Uh, if you want to hand those out, sis. So anybody needs them. There's out, uh, outlines and the, uh, the a map on the back with the path of the Second Advent that we touched on. Uh, but we're going to start in Joshua seven. Oh, throw it to me. Yeah, Joshua chapter seven. Thank you very much. You guys like my marker bag? My wife picked it up. It's tie-dye. All right. So, Joshua 7. Let's start right in verse 5. And um, Joshua 7 over there. Now, we did Joshua 7 last week, but we're going to try to just get through some of the rest of the Bible pictures and important truths from the book of Joshua. And, and really, um, uh, some of the big ideas we see in Joshua are number one, Uh, The faithfulness of God, that's a big idea we're going to see in Joshua. Not only the faithfulness of God declared, but also the faith of God demonstrated that you see that these promises work. And and secondly, uh, the conquering saint. And those two things kind of go together, right? So we have the faithfulness of God to give us His promises, and then we have the conquering life of the believer, the conquering saint, and how the saint can lay hold of those promises and realize those promises in his or her life. And that's really the great inspirational truth of the book of Joshua. And we touched on several of them, and now let's touch on chapter 8. We're going to talk about chapter 8, but chapter 7 is where I'm going to start, if that's not... Terribly confusing. Um, So what's the truth in chapter 8? We we ended last week at chapter 7. But chapter 8, I want to show you. Chapter 8 is about God's encouragement. Because they have just had a major, major setback. They have just really gotten messed up. And uh, in Joshua chapter uh, 7 verse 5 look what happens it says right uh, Joshua 7 verse 5 the Bible says and the men of Ai smote of them about thirty and six men for they chased them from before the gate even unto Shebarim and smote them in the going down wherefore the hearts of the people melted and became as water when Israel was defeated at Ai Israel was discouraged man Jericho was a juggernaut Jericho was like going up against the USSR in the midst of the Cold War. And Israel took out a world power. Jericho was a mighty world city, a walled city, a juggernaut that God knocked the walls down. They didn't have to lift a finger or raise a sword. And AI was supposed to be a joke. They didn't even send All of the troops, they only sent a few thousand people there. And so when they see themselves having to cut tail and run away from Ai, they're really down. You know, that there's a truth there. Be very careful after a victory. Be very careful because after God gives you a victory, you tend to relax. And Joshua relaxed. "Ah, You don't need to send everybody. And so be very careful after a victory that you don't relax and slip into sin. Achan did that, or slip into self-sufficiency, that's what Joshua did, he kind of figured, ah, we don't all have to go, we could just send you know, the, a light brigade and they'll take care of it, but always be diligent you never know what's going to happen, and look at verse 25, 25, Joshua said, uh, Joshua said why hast thou troubled us, right so the sin of that one man we talked about it last week, the sin of that one man troubled the entire camp Troubled the entire camp and it angered the Lord. Now just picture this. The whole the whole camp of Israel watches Achan and his family get stoned, burned with fire. Stones thrown upon them. It's a traumatic scene. They've suffered defeat. Some of their soldiers have died. What is God doing with us? Is God going to help us? Are we going to mess up again? I imagine that Joshua and the camp of Israel were very, very discouraged after this Achan situation. Not only did they get set back but people died they watched this horrible traumatic scene of God's judgment fall on this man's sin they were very down I'm imagining Joshua was down I'm imagining the children of Israel are down so look where he picks them up in verse 1 look where God starts them in verse 1 now that of chapter 8 now that the sin has been put away look what God says to them Joshua 8 1 and the Lord said unto Joshua fear not Neither be thou dismayed. Take all the people of war, see all of them, not just a little bit now. Take all the people of war with thee and arise, go up to Ai, see... I have given into thy hand the king of Ai, and his people, and this city, and his land. And thou shalt do to Ai and her king, as thou didst unto Jericho and her king, only the spoil thereof and the cattle thereof shall ye take for a prey unto yourselves, lay they in ambush for the city behind it. Now that the sin has been put away, you know what the Lord's doing? To? He's given them comfort, and He's given them assurance. I'm imagining Joshua is flat on his face before God, not sure what to do, right? Because you know what the devil wants to do? When you mess up, when there's a setback, you know what the devil wants you to do? The devil wants you to give up and hide. The devil wants you to go into a shell. The devil wants to just shame you to never show up at church again, never preach again, never try to witness again, don't try to minister again, because look what happened. Sin got in there. The whole thing messed up. And a lot of times we get like that, saints. Amen? Amen. We're just really ready to give up. Oh, what's the use? Why should we keep going to the promised land? Somebody else is going to mess up, and God's going to whack us again. You know, God's going to hit us again. And the devil is rejoicing when you give up. The devil is rejoicing when you just throw in the towel, when you just sit on the shelf. Oh, I'm not going to try to make it to the promised land anymore. And the Lord, you know what the Lord does? When the devil is trying to put you in a shell, the Lord is saying just the opposite. That's what he's saying to Joshua right there in verse 1. The Lord is saying, get up from my throne of grace and get back to the field of battle. That's what he's saying to Joshua. I'm sure Joshua is praying, God, what am I supposed to do? He says, I'll tell you what to do. Get up, Joshua. Get back in the fight. I've taken care of the sin, it's been dealt with. Now get up and get back out there. I'm going to give you AI just like I gave you Joshua. Isn't that a blessing? Because when you sin, you know what the devil does? You're dirty. You're no good. God's never going to use you again. Just give up. What's the use? You're not like those super Christians. Everybody else is a super Christian, but not little old you. Little old you, God's never going to use you like he uses all those other people you watch on YouTube. But you know what? God says just the opposite. God says, get up, rise up, and go to battle, and I'll give you the the battle like I gave you Jericho. That's a blessing. That's a blessing. That's, That's encouragement after a failure and before the next battle. Let's go to Joshua 9 now. You can't really see this, right? There's a terrible angle for my people over there, right? Let me (coughs) use remote control. All right, uh, let's go to chapter 9. Chapter 9 is the League of Nations. (laughs) No, I'm not talking about history. (laughs) I'm talking about Israel's mistake. (coughs) Ready? Look at Joshua. Actually, go to Numbers 23. Flip back to Numbers 23. Hold your place in Joshua. Let's go to Numbers 23. I I might get a strike on this one. I don't know. Never know. Numbers 23, verse number 9. All right. Look what God says about Israel. This is before they've come into the promised land. Uh, Numbers 23 9. You there? Say amen. Amen. All right, right. It's a library, but you don't have to whisper in the library, okay? Numbers 23 9. For from the tops, top of the rocks I see him, this is Balaam prophesying, God is speaking through him, and from the hills I behold him, lo, the people shall dwell alone and shall not be reckoned among the nations. You know what God said? He said Israel was not to be counted with the nations around her. She was supposed to be separate. She wasn't supposed to form any federation with any of the nations, no association with these other nations, no union with these other nations. Is that clear? Israel was supposed to dwell alone, God's nation following God. And that's a a lesson in itself, because if you want to make it to the promised land, you're going to have to be led by God alone. You're not going to have to have any federation with any of the lost people around you. You're supposed to let God lead you, and that's it. Because the Bible says, 2 Corinthians 6, right? Be ye not unequally yoked together with unbelievers. We're not supposed to be joined with, coupled with, you know, uh, confined to unbelievers. That doesn't mean we run away from the world. That just means we're not running with the world, right? And everybody goes to marriage when we think of that verse, and it applies to marriage, right? You're not supposed to get into an unequal union with someone that's lost. That's 100% true. But it can happen in business partnerships. It can happen in relationships. It can happen in all kinds of ways where you put yourself in a situation where now you're joined and coupled to a lost person who, newsflash saints, they're not equal to you. You are not the same as a lost person anymore in the sight of God. So you can't just say like the king said to Ahab... I am as thou art, right? You can't say that. You're not supposed to be. Now, don't be high-minded, but don't put yourself in a situation when you're confined and coupled with a lost person. You're going to regret it. You know how I know that? Because Israel regretted it right in this story. They make a league with the nation around them, the Gibeonites, and they regret it for years to come. Look at verse 9. Look at Judges chapter 2, actually. Let me show you that God's points to their loss of victory coming from the fact that they were coupling themselves and compromising with the world around them. This is a little bit after Joshua, but go to Joshua chapter 2, look at verse 1. All right? You with me? Say amen. No, go to Judges chapter 2, verse 1. I don't even know. I was doing too much today. (laughs) Shooting hornets' nests. Cleaning, siding. I, was, I don't know what I was doing today. And Now I'm teaching the Bible, so my mind's on six places. What are 12,000 thoughts, Brian? I, <laughs> Brian told me something like 12,000 thoughts go through a, a guy's mind in a day. So 6,200, but I said you probably have about 12,000. Oh, 6,200? Yeah. Okay, so I'm up there. I'm, all right, I'm getting to double digits now. Yeah, you're double digits. Bro. Judges 2, Judges 2. No, Judges 2, <laughs> verse 1. And an angel of the Lord came up from Gilgal to Bokim and said... I made you to go up out of Egypt and have brought you unto the land which I swear unto your fathers and I said, I will never break my covenant with you. Amen. That's a blessing right there. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Lord. Verse two, and ye shall make no, Judges two, verse two, ye shall make no league with the inhabitants of this land. Ye shall throw down their altars, but ye have not obeyed my voice. Why have you done this? I preached, uh, I preached a message one time on uh, when God asks why, right out of that text. And that's a tough one. When God says, why'd you do what I said not to do? <laughs> he says, don't join up with the lost people all around you. Why'd you do it? I think on that day we're going to all be like, uh, you know when the teacher catches you or mom catches you and you just totally disobeyed what they said to do? Why'd you do that? Mm-hmm. There's going to be nothing to say. He says, why did you make a league with these nations? It was, it led to their loss of victory. See, you think God's trying to hide the cookie from you, but God's like, no, I'm trying to get you to the higher shelf so you get the good cookies, and you don't want to get down here with the lost people. He says, you think I'm keeping you from something? No, I'm trying to get you to something by telling you, don't join up and get in the yoke with the lost world all around you. Go to Joshua chapter 9 again. Let's see what happens now. Joshua chapter 9. So here come the Gibeonites. And the Gibeonites are all around us, brethren. They see that you're different. They see that you got a light. They see that you got victory. They see that you're different than they are, and the fact that you're different than they are convicts the bejesus out of them. Literally, it just really bothers them. So they're like, they want to shoulder up with you. They want some of your blessings to rub off on them. They don't want you to make them feel too convicted, but they kind of like, they want the dripping. So the Gibeonites roll up on the Israelites, right? They don't want to get whacked like everybody else. So Joshua 9, 3, and when the inhabitants of Gibeon heard what Joshua had Done to Jericho and into Ai, they did work wildly, and went as made as if they had been ambassadors, and took old sacks upon their asses, and wine bottles, old and rent and bound up, and old shoes and clouded upon their feet, and old garments upon them, and all the bread of their provision was dry and moldy. And they went to Joshua, unto the camp at Gilgal, and said unto him, and to the men of Israel, We be come from a far country. Now therefore, make ye a league with us and the men of Israel said unto the hivites peradventure ye dwell among us and how shall we make a league with you see they knew they weren't supposed to make a league with the nations around them they knew it verse 8 and they said unto joshua we are thy servants and joshua said unto them who are ye and from whence come ye and they said unto him oh from a very far country Thy servants are come because of the name of the Lord thy God. Oh, they're talking a good talk now. For we have heard the fame of him and all that he did in Egypt and all that he did to the two kings of the Amorites that were beyond Jordan to Sihon, king of Heshbon, and to Og, king of Bashan, which was at Ashtaroth. Wherefore, our elders and all the inhabitants of our country spake to us saying, Take victuals with you for the journey and go to meet them and say unto them, We are your servants, Therefore now make ye a league with us. This our bread we took hot for our provision out of our houses on the day we came forth to go unto you. But now behold, it is dry and it is moldy. Verse 13, and these bottles of wine which we filled were new and behold, they be rent and these our garments and our shoes are become old by reason of the very long journey can i tell you that the gibeonites played upon their sympathies they played a tune that the lost have been playing with christians forever oh don't you want to help us (laughs) we're so tired. We're so needy. You've got so much from God. I mean, you're supposed to be a Christian. Don't you want to help us? Can't you just make a league with us? We want to be your servants. We don't want much. We just want to, we just want to kind of shoulder up with you and be with you. Man, how many times the devil uses that line with God's saints oh, it's just a little party, it's just a little fun, you know, let's just join up together, you know, we, can't we be friends, can we be friends, can't we just kind of go out a little bit together, do a little something together, can't we just kind of get, can't we all just get along, wasn't that an old line somebody sent, <laughs> that's what he's saying, aren't we on the same page, right, like a, somebody said it to fair to us, right, that's, that's what they're saying, people try to do that to us all the time, and you know what, It takes some courage, chapter one, to say, no, we're not on the same page. And no, I'm not going to align myself with you. And no, you know, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Because the white glove never whitens the mud when you drop it in the pig pen. It never happened. I know you think you're going to be the one that happens. When you jump into the pig pen and align yourself with filth, you're going to rub off on them. Your shining influence is going to put a little halo around them and you're going to make them better. You're going to pull them up. You're never going to pull them up. They're only going to pull you down. And you could be going further and faster in the wilderness, but you're going to have these weights called the Gibeonites slowing you down. And can I tell you, verse number 14 says, and the men took of their victuals, so they joined themselves, right? They ate with them and asked not counsel at the mouth of the Lord. Big mistake. They joined themselves to the world. They kind of like shouldered up with the world and Israel paid the price. If you read chapter 10, verses one to four, the Gibeonites were baggage around Israel's ankles and they slowed them down for years to come. Why? Because they just joined themselves and made a league when God said, don't make a league. Right? That's very instructive for you. You guys want to get to higher ground? Lay aside the sin and the, the, not just the sin, but the weights, the Bible says. you got to let go of some weights. And the Gibeonites and those bad friends and that girl that keeps calling you, hang up, all right, and go forward, right? Go forward, go forward. Go forward. Chapter 10. Chapter 10. Chapter um, 10. Chapter 10 is Joshua's victory at Gibeon. Bless you. And the victory at Gibeon is a great picture of the second coming of Christ, Joshua's victory at Gibeon is a little foretaste of Jesus Christ's victory at the second coming. Let's look at some of the parallels in Joshua chapter 10. so let's jump into verse number five. all right? Verse five. So all the nations around Israel knew now that the Gibeonites belonged to Israel, that the Gibeonites who they weren't supposed to make a league with, were under Israel's care. So they said, "I know." will attack the Gibeonites and by default will be attacking Israel and will slow them down. So it was, a, it was a military move. So in verse 5 it says, Therefore the five kings of the Amorites, the king of Jerusalem, the king of Hebron, the king of Jarmuth, the king of Lachish, the king of Eglon, gathered themselves together and went up, they and all their hosts, and encamped before Gibeon and made war against it. So right there in verse 5 we've got a bunch of kings assembling against Joshua. Hey, just like... Like they gather themselves against Jesus Christ before the second coming. Read Psalm chapter 2. The Bible says in Psalm chapter 2 verse 2 that the kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed. So in the future, all the kings of the earth are going to be gather themselves. How are we going to overthrow this coming one? That's what they're doing in the book of Joshua. They're all getting together. How do we overthrow Joshua? Joshua in the future, they're trying to overthrow Jesus, right? And look what happens, ready? Right? War breaks out. Verse 10, let's jump down to verse 10. And the Lord discomfited them before Israel and slew them with a great slaughter at Gibeon and chased them along the way that goeth up to Bethoran and smote them to Azekah and unto Makeda. And it came to pass as they fled from before Israel and were in the going down to Bethoran. Watch this. That the Lord cast down great stones from heaven upon them unto Ezekiel, and they died. They were more which died with hailstones than they whom the children of Israel slew with the sword. So not only do we have the kings assembling against Joshua, we have God himself sending hailstones from heaven to destroy the people. That's what he does in the tribulation. That's what he does before his second coming. Read it. You don't have to go there, but write it down if you want. Psalm 18, verse 12 and 13. The Lord is going to send hailstones at the second coming to wipe out the enemies of Israel. Let me read you Revelation sixteen twenty one. Listen to this. This is the end of the tribulation. It says, And there fell upon men a great hail out of heaven, every stone about the weight of a talent, and men blasphemed God because of the plague of the hail, you look up that talent, that was about 75 pounds. So the Lord is chucking 70-pound hailstones and whacking people in the tribulation, and people are cursing God and running for the hills. It happened in Joshua's day. It's going to happen at the second coming of Christ. Joshua chapter 10, verse 12. Watch this. Then spake Joshua... To the Lord in the day when the Lord delivered up the Amorites before the children of Israel. And he said in the sight of Israel, son, stand now still upon Gibeon and thou moon in the valley of Ajalon. And the sun stood still and the moon stayed until the people had avenged themselves upon their enemies. Is not this written in the book of Jasher? So the sun stood still in the midst of heaven and hasted not to go down about a whole day. Can I tell you also in this battle at Gibeon, something supernatural happens to the sun? like something supernatural happens to the sun in the book of Revelation, God starts doing some things with the sun, starts scorching men with fire. So Joshua has something done to the sun, Jesus does something to the sun in Revelation chapter 16. And if you look at verse 14, here's why it's so important you know about this battle, right? Verse 14. And there was no day like it that before it or after it that the Lord hearkened unto the voice of a man For the Lord fought for Israel. Look at verse 42. Look at 42. I'll just show you this was a special battle that the Lord references in the prophets when he talks about his second coming. Look at Joshua 10, 42. And all these kings and their land did Joshua take at one time because the Lord God of Israel fought for Israel. Right? Now you think that's not an important thing? Go go uh, Go to Zechariah. Go to Zechariah now. Now, Zechariah, second to last book of the Old Testament, is definitely talking about the second coming of Christ. If you don't know that, write that down in the book of Zechariah. Second coming of Christ. That's what Zechariah is primarily about. That's really what all of the prophets are primarily about, especially your minor prophets, right? Those, those short books or those shorter, not that they're not important minor prophets, but they have a smaller treatise, right? They're not writing like 66 books like Isaiah uh, or you know 12 books like Daniel, even though, well, Daniel's still a major prophet, they consider. But uh, Zechariah's got 14, but the chapters are pretty short. And he's considered a minor prophet, but his subject matter is great. And he's talking about the second coming of Christ. And by Zechariah 14, I don't know why I opened this, because I didn't take a drink of it. But (laughs) Zechariah 14. Um, Look at verse 1, right? Zechariah 14, 1. Behold, the day of the Lord cometh. That's the second coming of Christ, folks. The day of the Lord is the second coming. Uh, at least the beginning of it. And thy spoil shall be divided in the midst of thee. For I will gather all nations against Jerusalem to battle, and the city shall be taken, and the houses rifled, and the women ravished. And half of the city shall go forth into captivity, and the residue of the people shall not be cut off from the city. Now watch verse 3. Remember the battle of Gibeon? Then shall the Lord go forth and fight against those nations. Watch it. As... When he fought in the day of battle, you know what he's referencing? I'm going to go fight these nations the same way I went and fought those nations in Joshua's day, I'm going to fight them in Jesus' day, right? Go to Isaiah chapter 28, verse number 21. Isaiah 28, verse number 21. Isaiah 28, verse 21. All right, Isaiah 28, verse 21. Here it is again, speaking about the second coming again, here's a warning. Isaiah twenty eight, twenty one, for the Lord shall rise up as in Mount Perizim, All right, that was one battle. He shall be wroth as in the valley of Gibeon. That's when Joshua just had that battle. That he may do his work, his strange work, and bring to pass his act, his strange act. He says, when I rise to judge the nations, it's going to be the same way that I rose upon that valley of Gibeon and whacked all those people. The Lord's going to fight for Israel, uh, fights for Israel like he will fight. (coughs) in the great tribulation. I just love these pictures. You got to start seeing these patterns. The more you see these patterns, they repeat. And it's really the patterns that help you really start to see some of the richness of the Bible and allow you to venture into those spots that maybe God doesn't say something explicitly, but the patterns are consistent and you can kind of see what God's mind is. So uh, let's go to chapter 13 of Joshua now. We're not going to hit every chapter in Joshua. Some of you get nervous. I know. I'm not. Because honestly, a lot of Joshua, when we go from, uh, I'm going to erase this because this wasn't much, but I'm going to erase it. Um, When we get from Joshua 13 um, to 24, now we're into the second half of your book, Divide and Colonize. Colonize. The first first half of the book was divide and conquer. And as your sheet says, if you have an outline, the second half of the book is divide and colonize. Now they're going to move into the land. And there isn't a lot to say. Uh, Chapters 11 to 12, as your outline indicates, is what we call the northern campaign. More kings gather against Israel, and more kings get defeated. And by chapter 12, they basically put down all these major enemies. And in verse number 13, verse 1 of Joshua... The Bible says this, all right, starting this new section of divide and colonize, Joshua 13.1 says, Now Joshua was old and stricken in years, and the Lord said unto him, Thou art old and stricken in years, and there remaineth yet very much lamb to be possessed. So after the defeat of all these kings, guess what? Israel's going to get the land. And Israel's going to get the land. And if you want to compare, if you really want to study your Bible and compare it, these chapters, I admit, are pretty boring. But if you compare them with another part of your Bible that a lot of you skip over, I'm sure, if you compare them to Ezekiel 40 to 48 and put them together and put those chapters together, Joshua 13 to 24 and Ezekiel 40 to 48, you're getting the millennial inheritance of Israel. That's what it's really talking about. Israel going in to really take that land grant that God gave them. And God's land grant is not that little thing about the size of New Jersey that we call Israel today. That is a big triangle. God's land grant is, I'm not going to draw it. All right, God's land grant is, got, is a giant triangle which has got one point by the river of Egypt, which is the Nile, another point by Ur of the Chaldees, and its apex down by Turkey, by Mount Ararat. That is the original land grant that God gave Abraham. Not that little thing that they're fighting about now, West Bank, this bank, Gaza Strip. No. God says, I'm taking the whole kit and caboodle, and I'm giving it to Israel in the millennium. It's from Nile River, Ur of the Chaldees, Mount Ararat. That big triangle is the actual land grant that Israel will enjoy in the tribulation. And it pictures you getting victory and you getting blessings after you claim God's promises. After you claim God's promises like Joshua and you put down all the enemies in your life, you know what you're going to enjoy? Blessings. You're going to enjoy victory. You're going to enjoy a little bit of that higher ground we'd like to sing about. But let's go to there's a few things we're just gonna to touch on three chapters actually in this section here. Let's look at chapter 14. This one is a great one. So in this big section, there's a few notable things I want to touch on. First one is I want to touch on the faithfulness of Caleb. There's very, very good teaching and preaching in here. This character of Caleb, right? Almost two million people come out of Egypt. And of that original group, Joshua and Caleb are going to see the promised land. And Caleb is a faithful guy. Look at Joshua 14. Look at Joshua 14. Look at verse 6. Now they're dealing out the land, right? And in fourteen six, Then the children of Judah came unto Joshua in Gilgal, and Caleb, the son of Jephna, the Kenazite, said unto him, Thou knowest the thing that the Lord said unto Moses, the man of God concerning me. And thee in Kadesh Barnea, because he's talking to his, his buddy Joshua, right? They're the only ones who had the guts to trust God, right? Forty years old was I when Moses, a servant of the Lord, sent me from Kadesh Barnea to a spy out the land. And I was brought him, and I brought him word again as it was in mine heart. Nevertheless, my brethren that went up with me made the heart of the people melt. But I, please note that word, holy, followed the Lord my God. And Moses swear on that day, saying, "Surely the land whereon thy feet have trodden shall be thine inheritance, and thy children's forever, because thou hast, there." It is again holy. Followed the Lord, my the Lord, my God. Can I tell you? Caleb got to go into the promised land because he was faithful. Hello, <laughs> because he holy, not h o l y, but w h o l l y. He holy, completely followed his God. That is a blessing, man. And that's what his name means. Caleb means faithful, wholehearted, um, bold, brave, devoted to God. I think we need some more Calebs. I need to be more like Caleb. right? That's why so few of God's people ever get to the promised land in their lives. Because they're not wholly following the Lord. They're serving two masters. They're in church for six months. Then they're back out for a month and they're doing a little bit of Jesus and they're doing a little bit of somebody else and they're doing this and they're doing that and they're in and out. One foot in the world, one foot in God. You can't, you're never going to get to the promised land that way. You got to be all in if you want all God has for you. Now, again, I say this jokingly, but I mean it. If you're not looking for all God has for you, I'll tell you when the next picnic is. You won't even have to bring a side. Just show up. I'll be happy to have you. I will serve you coleslaw myself, right? But I'm talking to the people here at home that want all God has for you. I don't know if that doesn't make your spiritual taste buds salivate, but something in you, I hope, is like, I want all God has for me. And if I want all God has for me, I got to give God my all. I got to be a Caleb. Everybody else went by the wayside. They died in the wilderness. Joshua means Jesus and Caleb, the one that was wholly following the Lord, just said, Lord, I'm not going to get turned aside. I'm not going to let that little thing make me leave church. I'm not going to get offended so easily and stumble at all these little stumbling stones. Like everybody else, I got one desire. He says it right there. Look at verse 10. Let's keep going. And now behold... The Lord hath kept me alive, as he said, these forty and five years. So he's eighty-five now, right? Not a spring chicken, right? Even since the Lord spake this word unto Moses, while the children of Israel wandered in the wilderness, and now, lo, I am this day fourscore and five years old, as yet I am as strong this day as I was in the day that Moses sent me. As my strength was then, even so is my strength now. For war, both to go out and to come in. Can I tell you, at 85 years old, Caleb was still faithful. And you know what that made him? It made him strong. You know why he was so strong? Because he was still so faithful. He didn't let sin in. He didn't get turned aside. He didn't let bitterness take root in his heart. He just said, you know what? I still want that mountain. I still want God had for me. And even though I'm 85 years old and all this time has passed, my zeal for the Lord and my desire to get all God has for me has not wavered. And I'm just as ready to go and fight the battle as I was 45 years ago. Good good preaching, Brother Caleb. (laughs) That's pretty good. I like to be a lot more like Caleb because we're so easily turned aside. We give up. I know Eli jokes around, but I know he's serious. I want to finish strong, right? He goes, you want to finish strong, right? Caleb is a guy that finished strong. When, uh, when one million you know, nine hundred ninety nine whatever, when, those two, when it was down to just two people, Joshua and Caleb, Caleb said, I'm still faithful. Look at verse 12. And this verse right here, I've got verse 12 underlined highlighted. I've got dates in my Bible when the Lord gave me this verse. You know what he said right there in verse 12? Now, therefore, give me this mountain. That's a great, great verse, man. That's a great message. There's even a hymn called, I want that mountain, right? Give me this mountain. And what is it, saints? What is it? that God is telling you He could do with you? What is it that God has promised you that if you just stay with Him, it might take some time, like it took Caleb time, but you're going to see it? What is it? Doesn't something inside you say, Oh, give me this mountain. I want that mountain. Whereof the Lord spake in that day, for thou heardest in that day how the Anakims were there and that the cities were great and fenced. If so be, the Lord will be with me, then I shall be able to drive them out, as the Lord said. And look what happens. Look what happens. Uh, Actually, go to Colossians. This is a great verse. I wrote this, scribbled this down. Go to Colossians 3. Hold your place in Joshua and go to Colossians 3. You want that mountain, saints? Amen? Amen. You want a mountain? God's got a mountain for you. I don't know what it is. Probably different for everybody here. But you just stay faithful to Him and He'll give you more than your heart's desires. If it's His desire, He'll give it to you. Right? I didn't say a Mercedes, but He may give you that mountain. Right? Colossians 3.23 Colossians 3.23. Now, this is speaking to Christians. This is speaking to saints. And whatsoever ye do, Colossians 3.23, and whatsoever ye do, do it, what's the word? Heartily. Heartily. Like Caleb, man, with your whole heart. Heartily. As to the Lord, and not unto men. And look what comes next. Knowing that of the Lord ye shall receive the reward of the inheritance, for ye serve the Lord Christ. You know what he said? I've been faithful Give me this mountain. This mountain was his inheritance. You know what, brother, sister, you stay faithful. You know what? You can have that boldness. The Bible says you can have that boldness in the day of judgment to look the Lord in the face and say, Lord, I tried the best I can. Give me my mountain, right? He's got it for you. You just gotta be, we need more Caleb's. I need to be more like Caleb and we need more Caleb's. I wanna be like Caleb. Men that want all God has for them and would put their whole heart Christians, speaking to myself in the mirror, we're so easily turned aside. We give God so little. We give him such scraps of effort and scraps of time. And God forbid we're a millisecond inconvenienced by Jesus. We'll wait online at Starbucks for 20 minutes to get our frozen freaky latte, whatever it is, right? But God says, can you stay out for an hour? Can you get to church a little earlier? Can you pray a little longer? And it's just like, oh, you know, that's not Caleb. Caleb's 85, I don't know if he's rocking a walker, and he's like, you know, bring him at me. Bring, I'm going to put him up, put him up. He's going to ready to take the enemies out. He says, if God's on my side, I'm ready. That's a great, great, what an illustration. What a truth. Can't wait to shake that guy's hand in glory, right? Verse 13, you know what happens because he sees that? Joshua blessed him. <laughs> and gave unto Caleb, the son of Jephna, Hebron, for an inheritance. Hebron, therefore, became the inheritance of Caleb, the son of Jephna, the Kenazite, unto this day. Watch it. Watch it now. Why? Because that he wholly followed the Lord God of Israel, man. When you have the right desire, when you put your heart into it, Joshua, I mean Jesus. No, I mean Joshua. No, I mean Jesus. When you have the right desire, Joshua, Jesus, will give you the right reward. He'll give you that mountain if you want it. Let's go to chapter 22 now. Let's go to chapter, we'll skip a little bit. Chapter 22, just some notable things here. Let me give you another one that some of you might like. Some of you might want to use this, I don't know. This was chapter 14, the faithfulness of Caleb. Chapter, is that me? (laughs) Chapter 22 is how to destroy the camp. So, if you guys are taking notes on how to destroy this church, this is going to be for you. All right? God lays it out. How to destroy the camp. All right, so let's look at what happens in Joshua 22. In Joshua 22, you look at verse 11. Now, remember, some of the tribes didn't cross Jordan. Reuben, Gad, and the half tribe of Manasseh didn't want to cross over Jordan, they had some cattle. They really like those big, smelly steeds. They say, no, we're happy to stay here. Forget the land flowing, the milk and honey. I want me a bison burger. And they just wanted to stay on that side. But uh, that's how we get. That's another lesson. But in verse 11, look what happens. And the children of Israel heard say, behold, the children of Reuben and the children of Gad and the half-tribe of Manasseh have built an altar over against the land of Canaan in the borders of Judah at the passage of the children of Israel. And when the children of Israel heard of it, The whole congregation of the children of Israel gathered themselves together at Shiloh to go up to war against them. Why are they getting so verklempt? Why are they getting so excited? Where was Israel supposed to set up a tabernacle? Where? Only one spot. Jerusalem, right? That was right. They were supposed to be in the center of camp, right? They were supposed to put put the tabernacle in the center of that camp. So Reuben Gad, the half-tribe of Manasseh, they're setting up their own altar. And the other guys are going, what? What'd they do? They're setting up some idolatry over there. Get the spears, get the swords, get the shields. We're going to have to go take out our brethren because we don't want to have God judge us again. So they get ready to go back and deal with them. And verse number 15, the children of Israel confront them for their perceived trespass. See 15, and they came unto the children of Reuben and to the children of Gad and to the half-tribe of Manasseh unto the land of Gilead. And they spake with them saying... Thus saith the whole congregation of the Lord. What trespass is this that ye have committed against the God of Israel to turn away this day from following the Lord in that ye have builded you an altar that ye might rebel this day against the Lord? So I misspoke before, not, not, not in Jerusalem. That tabernacle was supposed to be the center of the camp. God said that one altar for that one sacrifice and that one spot is where I want you to worship me and they're setting up another one. And he's saying, What are you guys doing? What are you doing? Are you trying to kill us? And now you get the instructions in verse number 17 to 20. They point to two blights in Israel's past that destroyed the camp. Ready? 17. Is the iniquity of Peor too little for us, from which we are not cleansed until this day, although there was a plague in the congregation of the Lord? But that you must turn away this day from following the Lord, and it will be, seeing ye rebel today against the Lord, that tomorrow he will be wroth with the whole congregation of Israel. Notwithstanding, if the land of your possession be unclean, then pass ye over unto the land of the possession of the Lord, wherein the Lord's tabernacle dwelleth, and take possession among us. But rebel not against the Lord, nor rebel against us in building you an altar beside the altar of the Lord our God. He says, Look, if you need to worship God, cross Jordan. Take the bus, cross Jordan, and sit there and come to where God said to worship us. He says, what are you trying to do? Are you trying to be like what Balaam did to us? That's the first thing they point to. He goes, you remember what Balaam did, right? He got us involved in a false religious system. He got us to sin at Peor and eat the sacrifices of the dead and worship God in a way that we were never supposed to worship. And God plagued us and killed, like, I think, 23,000 in one day. He says, you trying to bring us back to that? That's the first way. That's the first thing that destroyed the camp. Balaam's stumbling block. You know what that represents? False worship a worship system that God never ordained that if you follow it, it plagued Israel then, it'll plague the people of God now. That's the first way to destroy the camp. I'll expound on it. That's one. Now, verse 20 is the second way. Did not Achan the son of Zerah commit a trespass in the accursed thing and wrath fell on all the congregation of Israel and that man perished not alone in his iniquity? No, the second thing, second person they point to? Achan. Of all the things that they could have pointed to in their short little history, they point to two people that represent two different things that will destroy the camp and will destroy this church. Here we go, ready? First one, Balaam. You know what Balaam is? My marker stinks, I'm sorry. Balaam is doctrinal error. That's the first thing that God says will destroy a church, like it'll destroy a camp. Doctrinal error. Letting false teachers creep their ideas into the congregation and it ensnares the saints and a false worship that God never ordained. God says, that'll take you down. You know what we're a little crazy about here? I'll speak for all the men that know the Bible a little bit. Doctrine. You come in here I'll talk to the folks at home, not the kind people in the library. But you come in with your little ideas, and you don't have a right heart about it. Nobody's got everything perfect. Nobody's got every I dotted and every T crossed perfectly. But there are some things that the Bible is clear on, and you come in with some fundamental ideas that are radically going to change the Bible and turn somebody's head upside down. I'm going to get my Tommy gun, and I will. Sh- you think I talk fast now? I will hit you with verses so fast, I will send you running down Lloyd Road. and I'll make no apology for it because the the foundation of the church is the doctrine on which we stand and if somebody comes in so in discord with their ideas about predestination or ideas about this or ideas about gifts or ideas about that guess what and you're not teachable now if you're teachable and we take you on the side disciples oh that's what the Bible says praise the Lord amen but if you got a hard heart and a hard head and you're looking to make disciples after yourself there's a room full of guys here and I'll be at the front of the line that'll just draw the sword and run run you out, because that doctrinal error, you get caught worshiping God, the wrong kind of music, the wrong kind of doctrine, all those things are doctrine, right? The songs we sing are doctrinal songs. It's not to shake your moneymaker, it's to shake your heart a little bit and get things going. Am I allowed to say that? I said it though, right? It's supposed to shake and move your heart, and we take those things really seriously. You say, but nobody's doing that. That's why God wants to spew most of the church out of his mouth. That's why the Laodicean church makes him sick. Man, you go out, go out, hand out tracts, go out to the fairs, and some people come up. I had this great godly man tell me how he had a vision of 9-11 in 1971. You got to read this book, you got to read that book, and Aaron was there. Aaron was there next to me, and we just, we just smiled and nodded, and he prayed for us, and then I, you know, prayed the spirits off of me, and I kind of like went on. Right, and that's a guy who was Christian, he was friendly, He wasn't like the people at the end of the fair that were wearing, you know, Black Sabbath t-shirts and pentagrams and like making fun of us. No, this was somebody in the Christian world. The Christian world doesn't know which way is north because all the doctrines have been so thrown overboard, we wanted to make it relevant. We wanted to make it palatable. We wanted to make it appeal for the kids. What programs do you have? And we threw doctrine overboard, and now the church is like a ship without a sail, run aground all over the place, making God sick, making people sick. He says, you better watch. That's the first thing that'll turn your church upside down. Things about the deity of Christ, salvation by faith, the preservation of the scriptures, these are non-negotiables. Hey. Non-negotiables. If you come in with a different Bible, nobody's going to take it out of your hand. But if you ask me what Bible is God's Bible, I'm going to tell you what Bible it is. We had some people kind of needling us at the fairs, at the booths, and uh, Eli very nicely threw one at me. (laughs) The last days were there. He's like, "This is Pat. Talk to him." And uh, you guys said, "Oh, you guys are big about the King James Bible. What do you think about the other Bibles?" I said, "They have flaws in them. That's why we don't use them." Another guy said, oh, you use the King James Bible. I said, we use it because that's the one God uses, you know, and we're not trying to be smug, but there are some things that we know. There are some things that we've studied. I told this guy, you didn't hear me tell. I told this guy, this wasn't a flippant decision. I didn't just say, oh, I really like Elizabethan English and I'll sound really separated if I have these and thous in my speech. No, not at all. We came to this out of a conviction after study and seeing the fruit of it. So this is a non-negotiable. I'm not putting another Bible on the pulpit. You you try, and the people in the pew are going to hear it. They're going to know. I won't have to, I'll just be able to sit back and laugh. (laughs) Get up there and quote the verse wrong. Everybody's going to look at me like, What's going on? (laughs) What you talking about, Willis? Right? That's what's going to happen, right? That's what's happened. You have no idea what that's a reference to, but God bless you. All right? All right. Here's the second thing you know what Aiken is? Okay, I'm going to finish this. Aiken. Is personal sin. You know, destroy the camp, number one, doctrinal error that creeps in from false teachers and ensnares the saints. And the second thing that will destroy a church is personal sin that is hidden by the brethren and weakens the whole congregation. That's it. It's that easy. Destroy a church in two simple steps either go the doctrine route. But then you got some churches that the doctrine's right, their statement of faith is right, and they're as crooked as the devil's hind leg. And they're covering it up with a smile on Sunday morning, and they're watching pornography, they're watching filthy stuff, they put a suit on on Sunday, and they say amen and sing the hymns, and they're as filthy as an ashtray in the back of a Methodist church. That's what we got going on here. all right. And God says, you're going to hide it, you're never going to prosper. The church will never prosper. We've got to be clean vessels. All right? So now that you know how to destroy the camp, are you helping or are you hurting this church? All right, let's go to our last section now. Joshua 23 and 24. I don't even know where that came from, an ashtray in the back of the Methodist church. I have no idea. I don't know. I'm I'm sure they spoke there, but I I don't. (laughs) These things are not rehearsed. This is coming to you live. All right. I need a delay. I need Rachel with a remote control, and I need a delay so that like, you can like loop it out. All right? The last one is uh, Joshua's, I'm not going to fit that down there, but if you're taking notes, 23 and 24, Joshua's farewell. And now we see Joshua's last words. This is God's great general. Joshua never lost a battle. There's not a lot of men in history that have the record of Joshua of never losing a battle, maybe like the MacArthur's, there are some other great generals in the modern era, but Joshua never lost a battle, and now he gathers Israel together, and he gives them his last words, and he admonishes, I want you to notice please, he admonishes the children of Israel to never forget. That's his keynote in 23 and 24, don't forget. because you know what happens to us guys? We forget. Right after 9/11, what was the big slogan? Never forget. Now I've got a room full of students that September 11th is a historical event that they've all forgotten. And uh, some of them, you know, I remember that. What is it? 8:46 and 9:06 were those the times? Right? You stopped. You stood. You sent some reverence. I think those are good things to do. Never forget. Never forget. Holocaust Museum. Never forget. Never forget. There are some things that God doesn't want you to forget as a nation, and there are some things you're not supposed to forget as a Christian. Somebody said this. I forgot who said it. A nation that forgets its past has no future. And I want to add, a Christian that forgets where he came from will never know where he's going. you got to know some things, Christian. Verse Chapter 23, verse 2. You know what the first thing he says there? Joshua called for all the Israel for their elders and for their heads and for their judges and for their officers and said unto them, I am old and stricken in age and ye have seen all that the Lord your God hath done unto all these nations because of you. For the Lord your God is he that hath fought for you Behold, I have divided unto you by lot these nations that remain to be an inheritance for your tribes from Jordan with all the nations that I have cut off even unto the great sea westward. And the Lord your God, he shall expel them from before you and drive them from out of your sight and you shall possess their land as the Lord your God hath promised unto you. The first thing he says, never forget what God has done for you. Don't forget what I took you out from. Don't forget what I promised you. That's the first thing. Don't forget, Christian. Don't forget what he's done for you. Don't forget on Tuesday what it did for you on Monday. And don't forget on Sunday what it did for you on Saturday. Never forget that old rugged cross, that empty tomb, and the smoke of hell, you know, as he fled that prison don't forget what he did for you that's the first thing and then he says in verse number six here's something else not to forget be therefore very courageous to keep and to do all that is written in the book of the law of moses that you turned not aside there uh, from to the right hand or to the left number two he says never forget what god has said to you don't forget what has god has done to you number two don't forget what god has said to you man keep it hold it precious Isn't it interesting that the book of Joshua starts where it ends? The book of Joshua starts with God telling him, courage, 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 courage. You know what the old man Joshua tells the young generation now? Have some courage. You know what that tells me? When you come through a fight with God, give others what God gave you. Hey, this verse got me through something. Hey, this truth got me through something. Hey, this illustration got me through something. Hey, this, this thought got me through, through something. It wasn't just given for you. It was given so you could minister it to somebody else. And Joshua got that courage from God, fought all these battles. And then he turns around and he says, guys, be courageous. That's what God told me and that's what I'm telling you. Look at verse chapter 24, look at verse 1. And Joshua gathered all the tribes of Israel to Shechem and called for the elders of Israel and for their heads and for their judges and for their officers and they presented themselves before the before God. You know what he says in the next few verses, the rest of this chapter. Joshua says, "Never forget where God took you from. Amen. Never forget what God did for you. Amen. Never forget what God said to you and never forget where God and what God took you from. And he has four places he mentions here in this chapter. I'm not going to read all the verses, but the first one is he took you from a land of idolatry in verses 2 to 4. The Chaldees, back where Abram was around people worshiping rocks and sticks and whatever they thought God was, God says, I took you from that. Amen? Amen. Then he goes on in, in verses 5 to 7, and he talks about the land of Egypt. He says, I didn't just take you out of a land of idolatry. I took you out of a land of bondage in 5 to 7, where you were serving Pharaoh, where you were making bricks and sweating and getting whipped. He says, I brought you out of, not just out of Ur the Chaldees. I didn't just bring you out of a land of idolatry. I then brought you out of a land of Egypt. Then he says in verses 8 to 12, he talks about them being in the wilderness. He says, I you, I took you also from a land of enemies. I saved you, and then your enemies were everywhere, and I delivered you, man. I helped you. And finally, in verse 13, read it. And I have given you a land for which ye did not labor, and cities which you built not and ye dwell in them of the vineyards and olives which ye planted not do ye eat. Man, don't we owe God some thanks? <laughs> he took you out of idolatry. He took you out of bondage. He took you out of the land of the enemies and he brought you into his promised land and you're enjoying his blessings that you didn't deserve and you didn't even work for. God says, hey, Joshua says, never forget, guys. Amen. Never forget. And After he says all that is where he brings the famous line 14 and 15. After he says where he took them from, then he says 14. Now therefore, see, now therefore, because of what I did for you, what I said to you, and where I took you from, now therefore, fear the Lord and serve Him in sincerity and in truth, and put away the gods which your fathers served on the other side of the flood and in Egypt, and serve ye the Lord. And if it seem evil unto you to serve the Lord, choose you this day whom ye will serve, whether the gods which your fathers served that were on the other side of the flood, or the gods of the Amorites in whose land ye dwell, but for as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. He says, because of all God has done for you, the children of Israel, Have a choice. He just says choose, man. Just choose or get off the pot. Just choose. Choose. You notice both Joshua and Moses end with a choice. Joshua, I'm sorry, Moses in Deuteronomy chapter 30 at the end of his life, you know what Moses does? Moses challenges Israel to choose life. You know what that's a picture of? Salvation. That's the first big choice in your life. Choose to trust Jesus Christ. Choose life. And escape death. That's what Moses talks about. And then Joshua gets over here and he says in verse 15, at the end of his life, Joshua challenges Israel to choose service. To choose labor. To choose the Lord. Not just for life, but for service. And listen, those are the two big choices everybody's got to make. Everybody on planet Earth has to make those two choices. Number one, you can choose to cross the Red Sea and be saved from Egypt. How many people have made that choice? Amen. Amen. That's a great choice. That's a good choice. But you know what? If you've crossed the Red Sea, you now have a second choice. Now your choice is, are you going to serve the Lord? That's another choice. If you've been delivered by the blood of the Lamb and come out of Egypt, now he says, choose who you're going to serve. No man can serve two masses. We're not talking salvation now. That was the Red Sea. Crossing Jordan is about you getting all God has for you and serving Him with your heart. Like Joshua said, old and crusty right there. He says, I don't care if nobody goes with me, we will serve the Lord. Is that you? Let me give you now, go to Joshua 18. Let me give you two big ideas from the book of Joshua, and then we'll go home. All right? I was expecting an amen there. Amen. Thank you, Brian. (laughs) You're just being gracious. All right. All right. Uh, Two big ideas. This is not erasing well. All right. Two big ideas from the book of Joshua. First First big idea, right? And again, my board is really shank. Let me do this. Let me do this. Remote control, right? First big idea. Crossing Jordan is the biggest thing in a believer's life that most believers don't even care about. Crossing Jordan is the biggest deal most believers don't even care about. Joshua is about crossing Jordan. Crossing Jordan represents getting all God has for you with Joshua. Getting all God has for you with the Lord Jesus Christ. That's the biggest deal for you now that you're saved. And most believers couldn't give a flip. They couldn't care. Yawn what's on Netflix. They don't care at all. You see, uh, go to Joshua 18. Most believers are like this. And I'm preaching to my own flesh too. Don't think you're the recipients of this. I'm yelling at myself too because I feel that, 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 that that laziness. Joshua 18, verse number one. And the whole congregation of the children of Israel assembled together at Shiloh and set up the tabernacle of the congregation there, and the land was subdued before them. And there remained among the children of Israel seven tribes, which had not yet received their inheritance. And Joshua said unto the children of Israel, How long are ye slack to go to possess the land which the Lord God of your fathers hath given you? Most blood-bought believers are just slack. They're lazy. They're weak. They're careless, meaning they couldn't care less what God has for them. They couldn't care less if God has a mission for them. They couldn't care less if God has a mountain for them. They couldn't care less if God has got some amazing victory he could reap in their life. They just, it's nice and comfortable. I'm going to church once in a while. I know Jesus loves me. He's there when I need him, like a phone on the wall that used to be on the wall, now my pocket. Right? That, that's, what, that's what God is to a lot of Christians. He's just a phone. I'll use it when I need it. You use your phone more than you use God, most Christians. Right? And God says, crossing Jordan's huge. This is a big deal. This is you getting to the promised land. This is why I brought you out for I brought you out to bring you in. And most believers are just like, slack. Just, oh, such hard preaching. This needs to be a little more relevant. Tone it down, Pat. What are you getting so excited about? Right? Excited about The Savior died so He could do something with you, not just let you be a bump on a log, and you're just, you know, you're more excited about the sale at whatever than the fact that the Savior says, hey, I could do something great with you. Do you want to be all God has for you to be, or are you happy with what the world is serving? I mean, that's really, there's got to be some dissatisfaction with where you are that makes you, we was talking about that, right, sister? That makes you want to get more. You can't be just complacent. Oh, it's subdued. It's nice. It's easy. No, I want more. Don't you? I want more. You know, I'm not complacent with this church. Let's let's start another church somewhere. Let's go on a mission field somewhere. Let's keep going. Go a little further, like you say you did. And last last big idea, and this is the biggest one here, is if you're going to make it to the promised land. All right. If you're going to make it to the promised land, you're going to need three things for the promised land. All right? Three things for the promised land. This is a big idea in Joshua. You're going to need faithfulness, you're going to need fearlessness, and you're going to need fervency. It all comes out of the book of Joshua. You're going to need those three things. If you want to get to the promised land, if you want to get all God has for you, maybe I'm talking to a young man or a lady somewhere, they entertain thoughts of being a missionary, you entertain thoughts of just giving that they're all, man, we should try to stoke those fires. We should try to blow on those little embers and light those fires up. Get people faithful, get people uh, fearless, get people fervent, and let's get all God has for us. Man, if the trumpet sounded tomorrow hey, you still got to go work tomorrow. I get it. You still got to do those things, but you could still be trying to get to the promised land. Nobody has to change geographical locations to get to the promised land. You just got to change perspective, change your purpose, change what you're doing with your outlook. And let's talk about the first thing, faithfulness. If you want to get to the promised land, you're going to have to be consistent. What does the Bible say? Be therefore steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, right? You, you, you got to keep going, man. You can't be reading your Bible one day and not reading it the next day. Going to church one day, not going the next day. You can't. You've got to be consistent. You've got a journey of a thousand miles begins with a, with a single step, but it's a journey of a thousand steps. You got to take all those steps to do it and be consistent. Man, I was reading about David Livingston. Have you ever read about David Livingston, Scottish missionary to Africa? David Livingston spent his entire life trying to get people saved in Africa, his his adult life anyway. When he died, they sent his body for burial in England. He's over there in Westminster Abbey. But before they sent his body to England, they cut out his heart and buried it under a tree in Africa because that's where his heart was. And where does your heart lie? Right? Right? Where does your heart lie? Where is your heart? Where is your passion? What keeps you going, man? Livingston. One time, they wrote him a telegram. We want to know if there's any roads there. We want to send help. He said, "I want men who don't need any roads. I'm going to keep on going." Livingston just said, "I'm going to keep on going." Right? I think he died on his knees in his hut. I think he was praying when he died. I might have him mixed up with somebody else, but I think he just had like he just kept on going. Doesn't that just provoke you? He didn't live in the Stone Age. He only lived 200 years ago, right? He spoke the same language you did, right? He was a Scot, but he was a brother in Christ. He did it. Why can't we do it? Now, I'm not saying you got to go up the Congo, but you can go to work tomorrow with a different perspective. You can go to the family function next week with a different perspective. You can see the next church event come across instead of groaning that I'm giving you something else to do. Maybe think about it. Oh, it's an opportunity for me to exercise and do something for God. Right? Faithfulness, man. Where is your heart? The Bible says where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. They buried his heart in Africa because that's what his treasure was, getting those souls saved on that dark continent. Where is your treasure? You got to be faithful, man. Number, number two, go to Isaiah 51. You got to be fearless. Isaiah 51. I got two verses left. I'm hurrying. Isaiah 51. Joshua is a great book, man. I've, I've enjoyed Joshua. Haven't scratched the surface, but it has provoked me. And I guess you're getting the drippings of it. So I apologize, but uh, get your own drippings next time. Isaiah 51, verse 12. Man, you're going to have to not just be consistent. You've got to be courageous. We talked about that in chapter 1, but here's Isaiah 51, verse 12. The Lord says, I, even I, am he that comforteth you. Who art thou that thou shouldest be afraid of a man that shall die? and of the Son of Man, which shall be made as grass. And forgettest the Lord thy Maker that has stretched forth the heavens and laid the foundations of the earth and has feared continually every day because of the fury of the oppressor, as if he were ready to destroy. And where is the fury of the oppressor? <laughs> the wicked flee when no man pursueth, the Bible says, but the righteous is bold as a lion. Let me give you another example from history. Ever heard of John Knox? John Knox? I think he was another Scot, right? He said, uh, he wanted his whole country, he just, "Give me this country, I'm going to die." He said, "I have such a burden for his country." John Knox was preaching against the mass. John Knox was preaching against Mary worship. John Knox was preaching against all the idolatry we see around us today. He called the Pope the Antichrist in public, preached it openly. And you know who was sitting on the throne? Bloody Mary. Bloody Mary was queen at that time who hated Christians like him and he didn't care. He stood out there in public and called Pope the Antichrist. Now, some of you are uncomfortable me even saying it now, right? The, the, the political correctness veil that just covers us. We don't want to say No, I understand tact. If we have a visitor on Sunday, I'm not calling the Pope the Antichrist. But look, We know who our friends are, and we know who they're not. We know who aren't our friends, and that system is called a whore in the Bible. It's called a harlot in the Bible. And this brother in Christ who bled just like you and I did with the queen out there who vowed to wipe Christians like him out, that's why they called her Bloody Mary, she's on the throne, and he's preaching against all the stuff that she held dear. You know what that took? That took a lot of courage. That took being close to his God. Who are you so afraid of more than God? The fear of man bringeth a snare. You're going to be reaching for the promised land, and you know what? Some fear of man is going to catch you like a bear trap, and you're not going to get to where God can get you to be because you're afraid of what they'll think, what they'll say. If you throw everything in for God, throw everything in, throw everything in, be fearless. God says, who are you afraid of more than me? I made man as grass, and you're afraid of of them? And not afraid of me. Lastly, go to Psalm seventy three. You're going to need some faithfulness. You're going to need some fearfulness, fear, fearlessness, and you're going to need some fervency, some passion, some zeal, man. Psalm seventy three. Look at this. Look at this. this. Is Asaph's confession. I wonder if this is our confession. Psalm seventy three twenty five. This inspired that great hymn, "Pass Me Not," by Fanny Crosby. Uh, twenty five of seventy three. Whom have I in heaven but thee? And there is none upon earth that I desire beside thee. My flesh and my heart faileth, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. You know what he's saying there? He had a passion for God, he had a zeal for God. He, and I know sometimes zeal makes you do numbskully things. You know what? That's okay. God knows your heart. We'll fix you later and he'll he'll fix it up. There's things I did as a new Christian and just a love for God that I look back now and I'm like, oh my goodness, driving around throwing tracks out the window, throwing them at the Catholic church. I drive by and I throw handfuls of them, whip them there until the church collected them and called my pastor up and pastor had to graciously say, put them in somebody's hand. I was like, yeah, that's a good idea. But, right, But that's okay. You know what? The Lord, your kids did some things when they were young and excited that you didn't smack them for you just corrected them and set them straight you know what zeal's good we need some zeal sometimes we get so knowledge we have no zeal right god says have some passion have some zeal you gotta if you're gonna make it to the promised land you know what's gonna keep your motor running just a fervency for god a love for god an overwhelming feeling that god did that for you and god could use little you to get you to the promised land yes david Brainerd. you heard that name David Brainerd died of tuberculosis at 29 with no converts after three years of trying to convert the Indians in the woods of New England. You say, that's a failure. Oh, no. Jonathan Edwards got a hold of his diary and his passion in his diary provoked many of the great men of God we read about today med like Adoniram Judson and Jim Elliot and William Carey were inspired to give their lives to God on the mission field why because they just read little David Brainerd's journal his diary and they saw the passion and the zeal he would pray and they said it would melt the snow his prayers had such fervency to just get on horseback and go out there and find some indians and he died sick and alone what the world would call a failure but his zeal provoked very many does your zeal provoke anyone to want to follow your great god that's how you get into the Promised Land. Crossing Jordan's the biggest thing in the Book of Joshua. It should be the biggest thing in your life. And if you want to make it, get some faithfulness, get some fearlessness, and get some fervency. Let's bow our heads. Let's bow.